This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we're speaking with Martine Prechtel, who is a leading thinker, writer, and teacher whose work, both written and oral, hopes to promote the subtlety, irony, and pre-modern vitality hidden in any living language. As a half-blood Native American with the Pueblo Indian upbringing, his life took him from New Mexico to the village of Santiago Atitlan, Guatemala, there becoming a full village member of the Zutujil Mayan population. He eventually served as a principal in that body of village leaders, responsible for instructing the young people in the meanings of their ancient stories through the rituals of adult rites of passage. Once again residing in his native New Mexico, Martin teaches at his international school, Bolad's Kitchen. Through story, music, ritual, and writing, Martine helps people in many lands to retain their diversity while remembering their own sense of place in the daily sacred through the search for the indigenous soul. For more information, visit floweringmountain.com. Hello, Martine. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. I'm so excited to have you on the show and hear about your incredible experiences and visions for the future. Oh, you bet. <laughs> I, I was just listening to all that. I said, boy, I better live up to it. <laughs> well, your book certainly did. All of the books that I've read have made me think anew. Yeah. So I'd like to begin by asking you to give us a little introduction to the Pueblo Nation and the Zutu Gil Maya that you lived with. How can we begin to grasp how these people see the world and their purpose in it? Their cosmology, if you will. Well, first of all, in um, I grew up in New Mexico, in a reservation, uh, Pueblo reservation. There's 19 uh, pueblos in 
New Mexico, and they're divided by different language groups. You know, anthropologists divide them like this, and Native people divide themselves like that. The matter of fact, the village I grew up in today is their biggest ceremonial day. I didn't go because I interview, <laughs> but uh, it's it's enormously um, based on feeding spiritually the world that feeds us. And and New Mexico, because in this area, you know, before it was called New Mexico and it's all native, the um, the main issue is always water and. Uh, so all of the rituals, non-Indians always used to make fun of everybody. Oh, they're doing the rain dance or something like that. It's based on the idea that grief of being a human being ends up being tears, dependent on whether or not there is water in your blood veins, in the tree leaves, in the ground, in the air, in the snow. For the winter, we really depend on the snow here. And uh, so I grew up uh, very lucky and also not knowing I was lucky. Uh, I'm not a Pueblo Indian. My mother was a native uh, a native person from uh, her people, who are mostly Canadian Indians of various and sundry types, you know, Hurons and Anishinaabe, Hunting Creek, and so on and so forth. It's a lot of painful history. But I didn't really grow up with those cultures, but because my mother was, uh, you know, mostly native, she got a job teaching Indians when, you know, an Indian was an Indian. So she got a, a job teaching on one of the reservations. They were all time. I hesitate to use the word conservative because that brings up uh, right wing Republicans, which they're not. But they're keeping their things alive, not in a kind of dried and stuffed revivalist way, but with them, it never died. And they're one of the most famous pueblos for having done that. As a result, they don't like to be broadcast or be talked about or anything like that. No, there's still no photography, there's still no recording, there's no sketching. <laughs> it's really old fashioned. I was a little cute little kid there, and everybody liked me, and I, I grew up there, and so um, I was lucky to speak. Um, they have their own language called Kiwa, and I grew up speaking that. And then um, the thing about these languages is that inside the languages themselves, they could put you in prison, they could cut off your arms, they could take away everything from you, but if you have the language, you can still speak and understand the world in a way that is indigenous. So uh, that was the main thing growing up was that my mother was the first uh, uh, person in this territory of the Southwest to introduce English as being something that was a second language. It was always, uh, you know, thought that English was a language and everything else would be eventually eradicated, which is native people here didn't didn't go for it. Thank goodness. And so she was teaching it from another point of view, and I was her. Her test group, she always asked me, how come all these Indians say this instead of that? And how come they say it like this instead of that? And, da, da, da. and I said, well, actually, you see, in this language, there's no he, she, or it. So you don't have a he, you don't have an it, you don't have a she, but you have a woman, female word. In other words, a word that belongs only to women. The only women speak it, but all the men understand it. you got words that belong only to men. The only men speak, and all the men understand it. And yet, um, you know, and all these different things. So then when you translate into English, you know, you get kind of pigeon talk. Which I still kind of speak, to be honest, uh, and proudly I say <laughs> in English, and because I never held English to be the sovereign language, I held it to be a language, which I have since worked as hard as I can to subvert into an indigenous tongue, which is why I write the way I do. But um, as far as Mayan people go, they're very far away. I mean, um, by miles, as it's calculated, I mean the closest to uh, Tuxila is. Well, actually, I don't know where this goes. It could be one San Francisco, but um, 
That's probably about three and a half thousand miles or three thousand miles from here. But culturally, it's a mystery. Always has been a mystery to me why there is so much corroboration of the way of thinking and being between central Guatemalan Indians and a lot of Indian people, native people who are from central Rio Grande region. Their speech is probably not related. I mean, I think people are related one style to another style, but it's like so remote. But um, as far as the mind and the beautiful set of um, human position in the world go, there's a lot of similarities. And they also have similar history with the, what you might call the European interruption into their culture, which in this case was uh, Spanish, um, not Spanish culture as much as it was Spanish government. And the funny thing about the Spanish, as opposed to the English and the French and the Danes and uh, Portuguese and all these other people that go around, uh, you know, at that time or around the Renaissance and afterwards, is that the Spaniards weren't interested in annihilating all the population. They were interested in actually having a huge population that they tribute, whereas these other groups wanted to get rid of or enslave the local population. So the Spaniards, for all their faults and for all the terror that they wreaked havoc everywhere, actually kept a lot of good records and also made the native tongues the national language. Like in Guatemala in the 1600s, it was required for all Spaniards to be able to speak Pachiquel, which is one of the most populous uh, languages being spoken even there today. And it's what, a million and a half speaker, maybe two million. Tutorial is very small, it's like 60,000 people. Big Tutorial, but it's a dialect. And then um, everywhere you went, they were required to, uh, you know, Peru was... They wreaked havoc, as they say. But with the English, the thing was to get rid of all of these guys, you know, take the land, have them as slaves, and then when that didn't work, you know, bring in black slavery. So I grew up in a place where Spanish was spoken as a second language, not English. And English was a third language. And of course, Guatemala, uh, where I did uh, live for so many years in the village of Santiago Tiplán, the language of the people uh, was not Spanish, but it was Tutuhil uh, Maya, and then almost everybody could speak three or four dialects of other Mayans, some of which are not mutually intelligible. And then uh, the men, because of the commerce issue, they were the, some of them, not all of them, but they were the ones who dealt with the outside world, outside their own zone, and they would speak some Spanish. But the Spanish they spoke was this most incredibly courteous 17th and 16th century Spanish, which are very similar in many ways to the Spanish being spoken in northern New Mexico today. So it's always been a mystery to what these two places, you know, I, I didn't leave uh, United States to go find Guatemala. I just ended up there, but I was always so mystified why they have so much um, love of the same things together. So as far as the cosmology, I'm not an anthropologist, so even though there are people that accuse me of it. <laughs> and to talk about it from that objectified point of view, I think it's better to go on and it will appear as time goes on because the um, the thing is we don't have gods or goddesses in the strict sense like, you know, the pantheist idea of Europe and India and all that, but there's a, a force that is constant and there all the time and it's not like another world, it is this world, the other side of this same world and so the maintenance of, of what it is we have here in this world uh, considering our world, is only a layer of a many-layered world, and it's our responsibility to keep our end up of it for all of the things that we remove from it. With Mayans, this is based on feeding time as as an entity, and they don't have a word for time, so <laughs> it's called the walking of dawns and the walking of suns. And with the Pueblo people, one of the major differences is, is that the Pueblo people do not have the abundance of the land they don't have the 
alive, whereas in the tropics it's a different story. So the among the Pueblo people, they are also constantly having to feed with beauty through their rituals, their dances, all of the secret society uh, rituals to heal, constantly healing the ground. They understand the human body is not being a reflection of the world, but being the actual world. So in English, you have the verb to be, German, you have a verb to be, you know, all of the Romance languages, you have a verb to be. And so your body cannot be the earth and be the land at the same time without it being sort of like an Escher thing. But in these other languages, there's no problem with it whatsoever. I remember seeing an anthropologist, and I like to poke fun at them because I you know, have so much fun, because most of them hate me. But no, well, then, actually, the modern ones don't. They actually like me, but they all time like me. Anyway, I saw him once in a sacred house in Atitlan, and I remember this one guy talking to this other you know, official, and he says, well, now what is this over here? And the guy said, well, there's a sun, that's morning star, and that's the mother of life that lives in the moon, but whose body is the ocean. And he says, oh, you mean like the sun in the sky? I said, no, no, not like the sun. This is the sun in the sky. And the other guy said, well, the anthropologist says, no, the sun is in the sky. He says, yes, the sun is in the sky. So what is this on this altar? That's the sun in the sky. And they said, well, how can you be in the sky in here? And the guy said, yes. <laughs> because if it has to be this or it's not that, it either is or In other words, to be or not to be is not a question. So to heal or in the language that I grew up in. It's a totally different mindset, and um, so this ends up being a giant philosophical problem for these other guys, where any two-year-old Sukhuzil understands that we don't need the metaphor in those cultures in order to have this enormous rituality. We have ritual instead of metaphors, whereas in uh, you know, European languages, you've got to have metaphors to understand any of these big things, and I personally have a belief that this was not the case originally. I think that actually the Indo-European language was immensely amazing, language of an immensely amazing people, but at some point in their history, something happened to cause them to become enormously afraid and schism about their language. That's why I invented this school I have, and that's all based on trying to figure out when that happened and how to stop being like that. So, sorry, I got carried away, but no, it, I it, always do. <laughs> you know what you're getting into, you know, I mean, you read my books. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it reminded me in your book when you were talking about plants as people and not as a metaphor and that idea really stunned me in a, in a beautiful way it, yeah and because planting the land is or was a sacred ritual all over the world with Absolutely. elaborate clothing and decoration and wow. you know the farm was a temple with sacred monuments so perhaps you could describe for us this holy connection between plants and people and how the Maya and Pueblo honor that connection. Well, what is not the holy connection mm. between plants and people? Because all flesh is plants. So basically your whole body is made of plants, or somebody's body that you're eating is made of plants. I mean, plants uh, are the most uh, amazing thing. That's why I wrote a book on the, you know, because with Mayan people, I mean, it's just, no one talks about it outside the culture, but because to them, it's not like something to talk about. It's just a known fact. And, like, when, I mean, I even wrote about it, and I remember marching around. I used to be a flute player in the village. Every time the old men and old women had to move somewhere on foot to go do whatever, you know, errand they had to do, they had to go with music. So it's always with the specific songs for specific rhythms of walking, going distance, or going short distance in the village outside of Anyway, I was always there. So I was going along, going along, going along, and these guys are really boiling hot, man. 
because they heard about a bunch of young guys that decided to be leftist guerrillas, and they're planting parliament, and they were just cutting down big old tons of uh, hardwood trees, which were never supposed to be touched because it was supposed to belong to the holy uh, beings of the mountains and the place that people weren't even supposed to go except to make rituals, and they never lived there. So these guys were just sawing all this up and selling the lumber during the uh, lumber companies. So the old people found out about it, and they were going to march up there and see if it was true, because they hadn't actually seen it with their own eyes. And when they were way up there, we saw somebody had planted a great big old cornfield, you know, um, big, beautiful corn you know, the white corn. And all these guys that were so mad, and had their machetes bristling, and everybody was yelling. And they all went to their knees and started kissing the field. Mm. And the field had been planted by their mortal enemies, you know, next door, and they gave up and went home. Because once they saw that field and once they saw the corn and they realized it was their own ancestors and was growing out there, all of the folly of, you know, human, I want it this way and I want it that way, just appeared from them because they recognized themselves. Because as far as they're concerned, they are plants. They are corn, their own self. So where I grew up, back to that again, back to old New Mexico, it's exactly the same thing. There are so many... Uh, you know, like, even when we eat breakfast, like my little daughter today, she said something about she didn't want to eat the blue corn, she wanted red corn. Because we grow, I grow all of my own plants here, all my food. And I said, oh, don't say that out loud, you know. <laughs> so what do you mean? So you're going to insult the mother of the one, and the other will be will be sad, and then her heart will fly out of her chest, and next time we plant, it won't grow up. So we went down to where I got my blue corn growing, I got purple corn growing, some special breed came from this old man. We got wrote about actually in book. And we're going down there, and they were all flagging, and they were all falling over. And she said, oh, I just insulted the one, and look at and then the red one, you know, was just fine. So, you know, the people say, oh, well, that's folklore, that's cute. But you see, if you live in a relationship with the ground and the world in such a way that that is your consciousness, then you become more of a human being. So as far as plants being, you know, genetically far from people, that's also nonsense, too. All you have to do is become a scientist, check out chromosomal levels, and you look at the genes, it's really not as far as you'd like it to be, you know? So, plant is, um, not only are we totally dependent on it, but the monocultures have gotten to the point that when you're depending on something, it means it's your slave or your minion. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, meaning, like, somebody works for me. Okay, that's a person that I'm paying, so they're lower than me. That doesn't work like that in Native culture. Like, whatever is feeding you and is you're dependent on, that is your parent. That's your ancestor. That's the one that, that you kneel in front of. That's not the one that says, ah, I own this. This is mine, man. Look what I got. I've got all these fields. I've got all this. So, no, every time you see, you have to kneel and you piss and you think. Because what if you're killed or what if you die at that very moment? then that beautiful way that you are at that moment is what you become upon your death. So the idea is by living in a certain way in these cultures that we're talking about, that you asked me about, in Mayan Tukukil and uh, the Kiwa culture of this area, is that your life and then subsequently when you pass away, it's supposed to feed life so much that the present never dies. So the present gift of being alive in this particular time is called the belly button of time, and that is given life by the way you fall back to the earth. It's like a seed. So people and plant, they're, they're like left and right foot at the same organism. And therefore, the way you live and the way you uh, are, I mean, I got attacked one time by a bunch of guys who wanted to kill me with a it's in another book. But um, I thought I got hit. I actually caught a piece of shrapnel, um, uh, what do you call it, a ricochet off a wall, 
in my sternum, made a hole in there, and it looked like I was shot through. And I started bleeding, and I thought I was killed because it's right over my heart. And so I said, no, I'm not going to uh, go panic. I'm not going to go terrified. This going to ceremony with my old teacher, Chile. I said, I'm going to be, just like you said, i got to be exactly what I, I believe in and what I am as I go out. So I got this great second chance because I wasn't shot through, but I was dying as far as I was concerned. So I was going to stay in one piece with that same mentality of being this beautiful plant being, going back in the ground to replant the present with my past husk. And so it didn't turn out I wasn't shot through. <laughs> so, you know, the lead was just stuck in my bone there. We pulled it out with the pliers, and I was fine. I was terrified for the rest of my life. But no, nonetheless, it was a wonderful second chance for me to realize, yeah, you got to be that beautiful thing when you go down. And all those cultures have that. So that you live your life with that, and you don't live it for to get to a goal line. You live it so that at this very moment, as I kiss my corn, that's what I always want to be known for, you know. Because mm. she's my mother, and she's given life to my whole family. I loved the chapter you wrote about the young men running to run versus... They're, they're running right now. Oh, this very minute that you're wow. talking, they're running at this very minute. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. It, it was yeah, running to run, not running to win, not running to get somewhere or, you know, to make money, but running for, I, you said, the deliciousness of it. And I, and there was just such an, it was such an incredible word, the deliciousness of running and living for just the passion of life itself. Um, yeah. It was, why yeah, not? Yeah, why not? And, if, you know, for me, as someone who was born in modern America, I feel alienated from the major spiritual traditions. I know very little about the practices of my blood ancestors. So... I gravitate towards the messages of Earth-based peoples, not to glue a veneer onto my tainted psyche, but because I reject the dominant culture, and I recognize how deeply it's affecting the Earth. I mean, the Earth is changing under the weight of humanity. Habitat is disappearing. The most fertile lands are now paved under urban sprawl. The blood and the bones of the Earth are being ripped from her. So, are there certain indigenous teachings, maybe the more practical side of things, that are being reimagined in light of this altered landscape? First of all, an indigenous, from my point of view, when I use the word indigenous, I'm not talking about Mayans, I'm not talking about Pueblos, I'm not talking about any specific uh, tribal peoples. I'm talking about from the point of view of the indigenous soul, which is not uh, tribal-specific. So it's a soul that I believe all human beings are capable of remembering given a good cultural surrounding. But in the sense that you say that it does not exist, 
uh, that's sort of like an organ that is not really very well developed inside all human mm. souls. Therefore, it's vestigial in most cases. And so it's like growing up eating McDonald's hamburger your whole life and then all of a sudden trying to develop taste but how much has been damaged and how much can be done. Mm. Well, I'm uh, one of these hopeful idiots who keeps thinking, you know, it can be revived. And not only revived, but some things can show up that have never shown up before. So when I talk about indigenous, I don't, I never, I'm not talking about something that was, that can be paved over, that can be imprisoned, can be killed. I'm talking about the thing that can't be killed, mm. that can't be imprisoned, that can't be pulled in, because that's still the arrogance of Western society thinking it's all powerful, thinking that it has, uh, you know, because the earth is um, bending under the weight of humanity. Well, there aren't humans, for one thing, there are people that should be trying to be human. Second of all, the earth is enormously powerful, and humans keep thinking they're in charge of everything. It's very uh, comical to anything as the indigenous zone intact. The, the thing that uh, people who are worried about it uh, are um, so tied up with, I think, is the fact that they do want it their way. In other words, they want to be able to have an indigenous soul and still at the same time have all the comforts of the conqueror's um, mm-hmm. society, you see, in place. And, uh, well, I don't think that's actually possible. So what uh, you're thinking of uh, trying to adapt something that's indigenous to, and that's still also uh, what you're saying is um, corroborating the idea that, that people have progressed and they have uh, changed. So I don't believe in evolution in the change that things are going to uh, an apex or that uh, this particular time in life is what we were always trying to get toward. I think uh, evolution has only changed. And that uh, what is indigenous uh, is in constant uh, change and constantly learning how to be new. Which is why I wrote the book on the Kick. I myself, you know, was terrified of all the GMOs and all this and all that. And then I saw these seeds bucket all by themselves without my permission, you know, come through it and all of a sudden there they are again. After, you know, if you have to read the book, there's quite a long story, but... Uh, so as far as, you know, um, saying I don't want to co-opt and I don't want to litter the world by putting on a veneer, and yet I want my cake and eat it too, it's not possible to have those two things. So I think what uh, I'm saying is, is that the grief level of finally recognizing the fact that humans are not here to succeed. Humans, if they are really, really, truly humans, appear to be an indigenous part of a bigger thing than themselves, and without them in charge. And then, of course, then you get all of the evangelical Christians say, yes, God is in charge, and that is definitely not what I'm saying. And then it's not just nature, you know, because nature, the designation of nature as nature is also not just Western, but civilization's idea that you have nature and non-nature. An indigenous view is that there is no such thing as non-nature. That is only people trying to uh, fortress themselves up so much with so many walls and so many ideas and so much armor to say, I am not that and therefore they live in this eternal crumbling grief world that is always constantly in flight. So basically the world that you have now that is feeling, as you say, alienated as a bystander, is in flight away from being at home as an indigenous person. Well, you say, well, how can I be an indigenous person if I'm not tribal? How can I be an indigenous person if I don't know what that looks like? Well, first of all, that thing I, <laughs> the I that doesn't know, is a good thing it doesn't know, because if it did, it would co-op so the point is to be able to go into a, a grief level where the grief itself becomes great. So the understanding and feeling so deeply the loss, 
not the loss of getting what you want, but the loss of what you love the most. So it comes down to love. Because if the taste buds of the tongue, the uh, wiring in the ear, if the corona and the retina are not seeing fully what is out there, the only reason is because of the language that's being used. But as far as I'm concerned, the first and foremost place that has to be approached, could be approached, might be approached, and definitely possible to approach, which is one of the big things, is with the language. And most people say, oh, I don't understand that. So, well, of course not, because, you know, people aren't doing it. But you have, like, for instance, if you just try to speak for one year without using the word it, in other words, a, a baby colt wouldn't be an it, a baby child wouldn't be an it, a pup on your, um, on your cupboard wouldn't be an it, and your car wouldn't be an it. You know, and you say, well, what would it be? Well, then, you know, normally you would get the more Tarzanic thing. You would say, my car, he's a good guy, or my car, she's a good guy. What people say, I already say that. Develop a third word that doesn't, or fourth word that doesn't mean that. So that you're no longer addressing the world as inanimate. And then the other thing is instead of talking about the sun in the sky, talk to the sun in the sky. Mm. And then they say, well, then you're going to be locked up. Yeah, in Western culture you would be. Where is this like, in Tutu Hill, so it's great. Also, where I grew up, they will say, you know, like when the sun comes up in the morning, everyone kneels, man, woman, child, or they go out and give gifts, because they know the sun is dying every day and it has to be fed. And the only reason it goes is for all the carbon units that each human being takes out of the earth, it has to give something back to the sun thing moves in the sky. Western people say that's a belief. We know that it's a science. So as soon as you're speaking, you don't use the word sun. You say, Father, you say, you don't say, hey, there goes the sun. You don't speak as an objectified, like it's something there, a ball of fire or something like that. You say, oh, Father, it's good to see your face, good to feel your breath again. You know, I, your child, your daughter, your fruit, your sprout, the one that hangs on your tree. This is just a little baby bird trying to pick yourself out of the egg of night, you know, all those kind of things people say. And then goes. And then at nighttime when the sun isn't there, you can use the word sun. But when you see the moon, you see grandmother. Do we see water? Call it my mother. Even you use the word water in front of the water. And when you see a person in the street, you don't say, Hey, Marge, how you doing? <laughs> you say, hey, sister, or hey, auntie, or hey, you know, whatever relationship you might have. If you don't know the relation, according to age, you figure it out what you think you should say, and vice versa with them to you. So the point is with language, uh, when you get a modern language, what we're calling modern language, which you know, is not that modern, but when it, it is already subverting the indigenous idea and creates instant depression because everything you're surrounded by is no longer related to you. So... If you can just take one word and change that, and then you can get going and try to speak without the verb to be. Now, I personally like the verb to be, but I don't like to think that it's the only way to speak. You know, like if you say in Kiwan, uh, where I grew up, or in Tsukuhira, you say, this is a cat. You can't say that. But you can't say either, um, like there's no absolute no's or yeses. Like if someone says, would you like a cup of tea? You can't say no. You can't say yes. You have to say, you have to describe what you mean. You have a negative and positive forward-moving phraseology. But if you say what I'm saying, as I'm saying to you right now, to modern people, they will say, oh, well, that, that doesn't going to do anything. But let them try it and see how their life goes. Because, you know, uh, it changes everything. How you view the world is how you speak with and to and amongst one another. Because the main problem with modern people is the only thing that counts is people, and they don't care that much about them.
So the inner relations between people are extremely uh, sparse because they see them only as humans as opposed to animals and plants and celestial beings and stars and trees. Um, and you could act like that, if you say, you know, and it wouldn't happen. But if you start to actually try to speak in your language, in other words, it's one thing to learn another language, because usually what you do when you learn another language, you just translate into your own language, and you're not really actually speaking that language. But if you try to subvert English into an indigenous language, you might find something really different happening. So that's why I work with a lot of people with that. Uh, in the beginnings, uh, I mean, mind you, so, yeah, but we need it this afternoon before the earth collapses. Well, you're not going to get it. You know, it's got to be slow. It's got to be gradual, because if it's fast, it's the gringos that work again, going too fast, killing the world. So it's going to be slow and beautiful. And there's lots of other places. I mean, uh, another thing is uh, food. I mean, it's one of the... There's two places. It's music and food. I mean, music is in suburbia, so it's food. But there is amazing customs and things with food that have leaked way back from our ancestors. Now, I'm not a big worshiper of ancestors, so I want people to know their ancestry. I want them to know their history. I want them to know where they're from, but not so they can get an identity, but so they can get a real identity that's different than their ancestry. But they can't do that as long as they're running away from their ancestry. And that's that's a conundrum. So as long as you're running away from your ancestry, you're going to constantly be what you came from. It's that old cowboy thing, you know. If the world is round, you get going fast enough, you end up sniffing your own butt, you know, because you've gone so fast. I'm sorry, a little graphic, but we grew up with that stuff. Um, with the food and music... You see, there are places there that go past all the nonsense of the head and go straight to the heart and straight to the body and the stomach. So with food and, uh, and then music, of course, organic music, I mean, you know, not so much plugged in music. But, uh, and, but when you play music, you got to know how to make the instruments. You can't just grab an instrument and play the instrument. you got to make the instrument so you know everything about it. The thing is, if... You dig, and if you try, and if you move, and you're willing to go slowly, and you're brave instead of wanting to answer, and just sit in the lawn chair and hope the world goes your way, amazing things now. They're not going to get in the front page of any of the imperial rags, but they're going to be there, I'll tell you what. criticize the New Age movement's appropriation and hollowing out of shamanic traditions. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The great desire for wanting something that's not the same as these people have been raised with has to be given its due. I mean, I don't think people's desire for something deep and ritual is bad, you know. And so a lot of the New Age, um, we're just kind of lumping it together. It's kind of a broad subject to just say New Age, but and so it's basically people are going to go and change the names of what they already know and then do the same thing over again. In other words, if their uh, parents were not raised, as, or maybe raised as Christians but didn't raise their children as Christians, or maybe their grandparents were uh, Orthodox Jews but their uh, grandchildren were not raised as Jews, still it's all implied inside the cultural way of going about things. And so as soon as you try to become a... Uh, you know, a Buddhist or, um, or a South African 
Shaman, then um, you generally go about it in the way in which all spirituality has been treated since you were young, even though you're not recognized, it just um, basically changed the words and acted the same. So in, even in that sense, you know, and it's not such a bearable, terrible, bad thing, but when you start making up a ritual in order to uh, accomplish something, then you're still manipulating phenomena, which is basically the tenement of technology. So, shamanism, where I come from, is not a career. It's something that you get touched with and um, you're called to, to do, and everybody goes kicking and screams, and, no, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do But uh, then you have to because the Holy said yes. And what it is is basically um, trying to give a place for the people when they're messing up so that there's somebody who can advocate their case with the holy, so that they can make it uh, heal again. That will only occur in proper situations, as far as I'm concerned, in a culture that has an intact relationship with nature or with the wild anyway. If you already have a people who are entirely, totally uh, disconnected with their uh, ancestral and with the ground, and as you put it, with nature, and then they're trying to be shaman, uh, I mean... I don't know how many of these new age shamans, you know, that was coming to me and want me to teach them this and that. And I said, oh, no, no, learn how to be a person first, and then we'll go from there. They don't know how to raise cow. They don't know how to do this with chicken. They don't know how to tie a knot. They don't know how to ford a river. They don't know how to get through the trees up here. They don't know well enough not to go off. But shamanism is based on the natural things. The way they are and all the myriad beauties of all the plants and animals. I always put things, I say, how many feathers does the songbird have on its tail? And they all look at me like, what's that have to do with these? you got to know. There's 10. Okay, how many does a raptor have? It's 12, and the big one says 13. And which one is the one you use for this? And I said, well, that's just something learned. I said, no, you've got to know all that stuff before. You're shaman. Little tiny kids know these things. So if you're going to have urban shamanism, as they like to call it, then it's going to be a shamanism of the modern culture in order to heal modern people, in order to keep them in the trenches with the insanity that's wrecking the earth in the first place, has no relationship whatsoever to, to that kind of shamanism. So the New Age thing is based um, basically on uh, <clears throat> feeling powerful. Mm. And I, I really, you know, like, I never use the word power in relationship to any kind of healing. It's just shamanism is an anomaly inside the cultures that are intact. In other words, shamanism is not what those cultures are made of. Those cultures are made of people who are together and got it together. When they mess up, then they got to have a, an anomalous human being in there to help them to patch it up. But the farther and farther they drift, it can't be taught. It's just something that the natural world picks. It's like two warring tribes. You know, let's say, for instance, you have two tribes that are ancestrally related to one another, you know, sound familiar, you know, and they're warring and they're at each other's throat. And let's say both sides pick this one being that they're willing to speak to, to the other. And that's basically what shamanism. But if you don't have the intactness to know what that is, then it's very difficult to just stand up one day and say, hey, I'm a shaman, I'm going to wave these feathers and you're going to be better. That's not to say that there aren't some people in all cultures, no matter where it's found, who have capacity. That's not what I'm talking about, because there are people who can heal, and there are people who can talk with holy, and there are people who do all kinds of things with the faith that they have, and that's great. So I'm not criticizing that. I just... When I do get a little sarcastic about all of the rituals that get made up and done, but a lot of damage is actually done. I used to go to men's conferences, you know, and they were crazy guys like uh, what's his name? Robert Bly and um, 
Michael Nade and people like this to hire me. Actually, at the start, I didn't go to teach. They hired me in order to keep these guys from setting themselves on fire, <laughs> blowing themselves up. Do I believe some of the crazy stuff they were doing? Because they were coming from a, uh, they had gotten rid of their religion and their spirituality, which has some sort of idea of tradition, but was not really nothing anymore for them, apparently. And then all these guys coming out of war from Vietnam or whatever. And then they were making up rituals that basically came from group therapy and trying to make them look as if they were actually spiritual things. And with natural peoples, I have to say this, this is what's always very unpopular when I say it. I always hate mail if they say it, but just as gently as possible. Any ritual that is done spiritually in a real tribe is never done for the people. It's never done for the people so that after the ritual is over, they say, wow, I feel a lot better. <laughs> the whole idea is for the holy to feel better because the holy has been mined and taken from and cut and, and, and holes dug in here. Uh, by, and the indigenous people think they're doing that too. They don't think they're outside that. You know, they don't say, oh, we're not Western. We're great. We're pure. We're clean. We don't do any of that. No, they feel they're the guiltiest of all. And so they spend all their time making risk to get holy well. They're trying to heal the earth. They're trying to heal the soul of the spirit. So they're not trying to heal the people, but the people are healed as a result because they're the ones that are the benefactors of all of this uh, great earth that is here that has been giving us our food and our lives. So when you have uh, all of these ritual things that are supposed to make you have an experience or feel something, it's just you know very amateurish that the people haven't been feeling these things by natural world. Others, when they get up and eat their breakfast, they don't feel that exhilaration of just being alive like you're doing you're a little kid in the world. And there's that tree and there's all this plant and the beautiful smell of the air. And, oh, my God, what's that cricket doing? And all that sort of, Maybe they don't have that. And so they're trying to find a spiritual way to jettison out of the muck in which they were born and raised in, in which they are still uh, in collusion with by being this way. So I'm always saying, you know, best to learn how to become a people learn how to become a culture, and then if shamans are necessary, they will appear, and they will be legitimate within the cultures that appear. Martin Kretel will not be the one to say what those cultures look like. But I will say, I think there's enough spiritual DNA in a human being of any place to regenerate it, given the condition. And yeah. for so many people who are in the daily grind in urban life, who... Mm, um, yeah maybe don't have the space to grow food, don't have the uh, even the thought process to slow down and listen to that cricket. Where an apple tree doesn't worry about who eats this apple. You know? mm. Apple just keeps making apples. And it's not about getting to the place to where you can have that wonderfulness of being able to be with the cricket and all that. It's not about not having the space. It's about making the space. I don't have this, or I don't know it. Make it happen, you know, with yourself. Don't wait for it to happen. And another thing is, is that human success is still what you're talking about. You're still talking about, oh, wow, great. I am me as a person. I'm going to finally get this. No, that's still the conqueror talking. That's still imperialism. That's still me procuring something that I want and I need. And the one that I want is driving in pain. The eye that needs it is the one that's writhing in the pain. The reason it's writhing in pain is because of the fact that that eye is the one that wants it. And I'm not talking about the ego. I'm talking about this um, being that uh, wants to possess instead of become the thing itself. And becoming it, how do you become it? 
you know, uh, we talk about initiation and all that. You can't just put a person through a program and, and they become this. On the other hand, as I said, if you have faith that there is really a memorial process in the spiritual DNA of the human being, which I am um, just giving the name of indigenous soul, and if you allow that thing to live, then it may give forth something beautiful for the future. The thing is a capacity with grief. When you don't have a capacity with the grief as a modern person, then you cannot praise. And so one of the greatest things is to be able to praise. And so what am I going to praise? I don't see anything worth praising. Yeah, that's the problem, what you're seeing, not with what there is to praise. There is always something worth praising in this earth. And there's always something beautiful to hear. It's just we're not hearing. Of course, you say, wow, the world is so like this. The world is so like that. Yeah, that's the challenge. See it. Hear it. That don't mean to say, see the good in anything. I mean, you know, some guy is raping a woman. There's nothing good about it. Okay? I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying, see what there is to see. See what there is beautiful. And you say, otherwise, it's just laziness. And the culture is part to be lazy. If it's not coming my way, it's the culture's problem. It's not coming my way. Let me have a litigation so I can get paid for suffering. No. Make beauty. And so making beauty, the mysterious thing about beauty, that I, don't, I found in um, modern cultures really, they take a, a, a slim view of what I say is that that beauty comes only from a capacity with grief. Beauty does not come from anything but grief. Uh, grief is not about being sad or sorrowful. Grief is about having the deepest emotion of missing what it is you love. And so if the thing that you love the most you're missing, then you can praise by weeping and by feeling. And that actual ability to grieve then becomes the actual praise itself. The incapacity to grieve what we have lost as human beings uh, by praising the beauty of it in itself is, is one of the biggest problems. But you become a human being, you can become a human being, in the process of bestowing on another but you yourself are never bound to receive. In other words, um, it's probably not popular to tell somebody you have to give to the youth what you never got. I'm not talking about money and I'm not talking about opportunity. I'm talking about recognizing, watching them like hawk, and then that one little time a 16-year-old actually sees the gorgeousness of the sunset on the sea and begins to weep, not for the angst of being a teenager, not for the sadness, but for the beauty of what they saw. And there's somebody a little bit older there who says, you know, what you're saying is really, really worthy. And then begins to weep with them, not in a superior, condescending way, but side by side. Then people start to do flower. And then they start to see the cricket. And then they start to make room for the things that need to be made room. And that's the only place there's ever revolution is going to happen that can stay. Because it's not made for people. People are not here to succeed getting their way. As long as people have been getting their way, they're always in the big old mess. Hmm. They're always in the big old mess. And you say, well, should I just be fatalist and give up? No, especially not that. <laughs> it's not a to be or not to be problem again. No, be beautiful. Be beautiful. Be something that God would like to eat for breakfast. And then the world is replenished. And then you are renewed. But don't do it for that. Do it to make the world beautiful. 
And you walk on, I've got all these people I know. I've got a lot of students coming in. This, I've got 400 students. Jesus, I can't believe it. <clears throat> and some of them I don't know. Most of them I don't know. When the first days they come in, they come in with these faces that, you know, you could, you could cut a shark in half of these faces. They're so angry about the way the world is. I said, you know, the world is not getting better by your ugliness. Mm. You know, if, if I had you over for dinner, the fool would get up and run away. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for five seconds on earth, have beauty. And then there will at least have been five seconds where the earth isn't like what you think. You know, try it. You know, I like it. The environment is not concerned whether or not the redwoods go extinct or whether the sea rises mm-hmm. or whether this plant goes dead. We've done that a million times before. It's the people that don't want it. The people who want to make all the money and are killing the earth and are raping all the environment and this, that, and the other thing. You can't have this big city and be in collusion and then have environmental concerns being approached by all kinds of programs and not have that be part of the same sin and the flip side of the coin that's making the problem. Mm. That does not mean you shouldn't protest. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try for environmental things, but you shouldn't. You should understand that is not an indigenous motive. Mm. For it to be different than that, you're going to have to be the thing itself that you want to have. Mm. You can't just, uh, you know, go out and lobby and say, I've paid my five cents, now I'm going to go home and be in collusion with the bullshit I'm, I'm against. So, I'm thinking that uh, in the original uh, idea of your program, this is that people are always trying to, quote, find an answer, find a bumper sticker, find a, uh, a way to go. The point is is that if you're only feeding humans, the holy is fleeing, and the holy is the core of what you're calling the environment, or something, I don't know if you're calling but people call the environment. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I haven't found the... Uh, that to be making much of a difference. I don't think it's a bad thing to try and keep going, but there's just the same mentality as running a war are in the boardrooms of all these people, quote-unquote, trying to have a a win-win-win situation with the situation as it is and still fight for environmental concerns, which basically makes it so people have a choreographed nature that they can go take a walk in while they still live in their monetized urban area. And that has nothing to do with, as far as I'm concerned, with uh, loving the wild. It has nothing to do with being an indigenous person. And a lot of indigenous people have given up being indigenous and are still called indigenous. So we don't want to confuse those two terms. It's two different things. But uh, when it comes down to, um, well, it doesn't come down. When we come up to, as an individual, very few people are courageous enough to do any things they say. But it's not going to kill anybody to give it a shot for a little while. Uh, or once a week, or uh, uh, 15 minutes a day, or something, you know, to change their language, or the way they dress, or what they eat. Things will change a little bit that way. But the natural world has to be asked, and it has to be addressed. In other words, ask uh, the cranes, the migrating cranes, then you'll be shaman, you see. Ask the earth itself, the people that say, well, we have to do something for the environment, because we are in charge of the earth, no matter what. Humans are in charge, humans are in charge, humans are in charge, humans are not in charge. The more they are in charge, the more the earth bucks. Everybody says, oh, the earth is uh, falling apart. No, the earth is having a, a flu. <laughs> it's having a big flu, man. It's trying to get rid of this bug. It's bugging them. And uh, it's bigger than they are. Uh, it's this whole idea that humans are bigger than the earth. So, yeah, but look what's happening. If you look what's happening, you're getting ready to sink into it and die. That's what's happening to it. And the earth will continue on, and the universe will too. 
And I mean, protest bad things, you know, the pipeline through here, protesting it, um, the roads through here, protesting it, poisoning the river, protest all of it. But don't confuse that with a spiritual approach, okay? And it doesn't mean that it's separate from that, but as you have the spiritual thing, you have the wherewithal to do the other. But any changes that happen are still for people, it's not for the, the holy. And the people don't want to hear, what do you mean holy? There's no holy. You mean Jesus? No, not Jesus. You mean Yahweh? No, I don't mean Yahweh. I mean something you don't know. It doesn't matter. You don't have to know. It's inside every seed. So next life, bust loose and live. You lose life and then we die. Yeah, then we live something so it keeps going. Different vision of time. Mm. The indigenous past never leaves. That's the other thing. Like, past tense. You don't have a past tense or a future tense in most of these indigenous languages that are finite. Like, when somebody dies, they never leave. It's always here. <laughs> like, I, there's a tribe, and what is it, two weeks from now, next door to us up here, and it's another Pueblo tribe. They're all going to go back where they came from, you know? The whole entire tribe goes, you know, 6,000 people goes, they disappear into this lake where they originate from, and they come out the same day that they originated, which is, you know, 20,000 years ago. And then the gringos say, well, you can't really do that. Ask when they mean this. Yeah. And they come back home, and they start their lives up, and as far as they're concerned, every year, it's the first year of existence. So, you know, it's a different time understanding. Is time another language barrier? Well, time is language. That's exactly what it is. And the problem is in uh, Western languages, you have to develop astrophysics to even talk about it. But, you know, if you're talking about the things that they're talking about in astrophysics, you can say those in Mayan when you're five years old. Well, that's it's not it's not that abstract or difficult to understand because it's not mathematical. It becomes something totally uh, amazing. And <clears throat> so um, it's very important. People say, well, then all I have to do is learn another language. Well, that would be good as long as you actually learn it, but you can't actually learn it if the grooves of your mind are already cut with the language that you grew up with. It's only certain extraordinary people that can make that jump. So that's why I'd say it's better to subvert the language you already have mm. with these ideas so that, you know, you start cutting new grooves. You know. When you have a verb to be, you have, they used to call it in the old days, although the rhetoric was linear times. And what you have in a lot of indigenous languages, you have what it would be called a spherical time. You have, like, and when you're writing in your mother's belly as a fetus, you're surrounded by the amnios. And that, in Mayan thinking, amnios, the word for the amniotic fluid is time. In other words, you're floating in that time. And what is that time made of? Well, it's salty, you know, it's full of minerals. And I call it stars. I call it stars. And the stars, um, they're all, all time combined. In other words, things that used to happen or did happen are there. Things that are going to happen are there. Things that are happening are there. Things that are never going to happen are there. <laughs> Things that we wanted to happen in the old days are there and never happened. So they're all floating in this gigantic soup of the ocean of time. And so as a small child inside your mother's belly, you're living in this mixed time altogether instead of it being a linear beginning to end time, you see. Then you're born into this world with the air breathing from the water, and then you get sequential time. You see, you know, when things happen after one, after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. But they are totally fed by this great big, uh, what they call ocean of time. And so this this is like everybody called the ambientality, but you know that's just the way that people speak and think. It's not like you know something you got to go to school to learn. It's like everybody knows it. 
Um, so it's, it's inherent in the language. A modern language, I think, is for some reason drifted away from some ancient understanding of time because they stopped being nomads. At some point when they were ancient nomads, they had a totally different thing of time because they're always constantly moving. And when they moved, they didn't like move away from where they were. They moved in cycles back to where they were. And so I think uh, ancient uh, European languages actually did have a pretty good grasp of time. But once everybody becomes settled, it's just like the geologist told me one time, it's like a, the rug at the front of your house where the dog keeps running out, you know, it keeps wrinkling up, wrinkling up, wrinkling up. Personally, you just have this gigantic mass blocking the door. And instead, if you spread this gigantic, beautiful rug out, you'll see all of the permutations of time and life lived all in one place at the same time, not one before the other. And uh, so when it comes down to hope, uh, if you have that kind of understanding of time, then all of this uh, very depressive, you know, well, look what we're doing to the earth and things, which is very true. I'm not putting it down. I'm not saying that, but that's why it's happening. Because people are always trying to find the answers. Everybody who's making a war thinks they're right. You know, no one's making a war because they think they're wrong. They're only making a war because they think they're right. The ones that are doing this and doing that because they're right. They're good guys and the bad guys and the left and the right. They all think they're right. Instead of seeing what is there and the big time and the big mind and then trying to be one of those little pieces of the stitching in that gorgeous rug of time so that you do your part not to make it a big tear. So I don't have time, make time. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with that time? It's a coffee shop being depressed. Forget it. Go out and do it. It is really easy to get depressed. Yeah, it's a, it's a sport. Oh, it is. Yeah, and I... Highly paid sport. Yeah, that's very true. It's very hard. You can paid. be depressed as much as you want when you're dead. So don't waste your time being depressed now, because once you're dead, you can be depressed all the time if you want. You know, I've seen everything I had shot down before me. I lost 19 friends in 45 seconds. I've been shot in the chest myself, lost my whole culture twice over, and people say, how come you're still happy? So, man, I'm not letting the enemy take me down, not smiling, mm-hmm. you know? Because otherwise, they win. <laughs> Invite the fascist owner to dinner, man. Oh, that's Don't sad. eat alone. Thank you so much, Martin. If you're sad more than two days in a row, you ate something bad or you're thinking something weird. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Unlearn and Rewild. I'm Ayana Young. You heard the guitar music of Robbie Basho, two tracks, Blue Corn Serenade and Kawaka Demor. Our theme song is Like a River by Kate Wolf, and our producer is March Young. <laughs> <laughs>